this evening and to continue this series in gifts, um, I'm going to pray and then we can get started. Gracious Father, help us to understand this word. Help us to understand what Paul was getting at. Help us to know better how we can live for you, serve you, love you and love your people. Make us here at Soma uh, truly your body, strong and healthy. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen. Well, as was suggested earlier, it is a little bit of a controversial area. It's a bit of a pity, really, but uh, here we are. And uh, I will take some questions afterwards. So I'm going to um, not go exhaustively into everything. And then maybe if there are particular issues that people want to ask about, we can raise those and talk about them. So if you want to take, jot a little note as we go along, I will answer some questions. Just uh, looking at the passage too, we're going to dive right in. But uh, I'm not going to comment on the little section there in verses 20 to 22. Uh, which, if you just read through, at first blush, looks like he's contradicting himself, verse 22 especially. But the key to it is you actually have to understand what the quote he's quoting is all about to get why he says what he does in 22. So we're just going to ignore that little bit. It's very clear in the commentaries, and I'm happy, happy to explain it to you after, if you'd like. But uh, let's uh, try and get the gist of this. Now, this is a very strange section, because you know all the other passages, four passages that talk about gifts... When you come to this one, which is a sort of an extension of chapter 12, an explanation of chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians, uh, this one does a comparison. It's a bit naughty, really. You know, you look at the other passages of Paul, and what it's all about is how all the gifts are going to work together. It's got to be cooperation. You can't look down your nose at one and, and, or envy somebody else's gift. It, that's just not how it's supposed to work. But then something's come up in the church here in Corinth, first century Corinth and Paul wants to address it and so he does actually make a comparison and so that's why I'm doing these two gifts in the one night is that we can actually look at them and get what Paul is, is on about at prophecy and at the gift of tongues so let me just uh, refresh your mind those first few verses he's he's talked about eagerly desiring the better gifts the higher gifts at the end of chapter 12 and then in chapter 13, he says, but I'll show you a better way still. And it's all about love. Uh, this is worth noticing because, you know, if you just look around the four passages on gifts, so that's um, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. Easy to remember, two 12s, two 4s. If you look around those, it doesn't take long before he starts talking about love. And so he's got this chunky section, chapter 13, on love. Often gets read at weddings. We're not going to look at it now, and maybe I might finish the whole series with that, just to pay honour to the way these passages function. But that's some, some months off yet. So then he's talking about that, and so he's saying, you know, you've got to love, you've got to love. But then he wants to come back to this issue. So he says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Now, just why that's so, we'll be looking at. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does... Uh, does not speak to men but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He speaks in a tongue, edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Now, at one level, we shouldn't be too surprised that he elevates prophecy up like this. Because we have got that other passage, and it comes up in another place as well. But Ephesians 4, if you think about that passage that we're told about, the gifts, the word gifts, which I'm calling the originating gifts, what Alan Hirsch was just talking about, the, the apostolic gifts, those gifts are there 
in order to train up others for ministry. So you have the apostle, prophet, evangelist, and we might say pastor, teacher. The, the Greek is sort of suggests those things might be tied together. I usually talk about the four and a half or fourfold gifts. Alan Hirsch has been talking about the five. But there's that idea. Don't worry about that too much. But the idea of these word gifts, these originating things, that then equip the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, you're to use all the gifts then. All the other gifts are to be used. So we shouldn't be too surprised that Paul has got a kind of a rank ordering. Prophecy is amongst those higher level gifts. Those are ones that originate what the church is. And then all the gifts are to be used. But I think there's another thing going on here as well. It's not just that this is one and tongues is among all the others. I think he's kind of bumping it further down again. Why does he focus on these two? Well, let me explain what prophecy is about and then we'll compare and contrast with what tongues are about and I think we'll get a bit of a sense. Now, in this uh, little section, I want to kind of keep it brief. I'm not going to give you proofs. I'm not going to give you all the verses. They're there. They're out there, I think, as to the position I'm giving. But I want to just give you a... Um, a bit of an overview, and that I think will be a better use than us taking two hours going through exhaustively looking at lots of passages. So just let's see, get a feel for this. And if you've got particular um, passages you want to ask about, I'll be happy to try and answer them if I can. It's a question and try and answer tonight, I think, is what we'll have at the end. We might have a question and answer, but we'll see. Okay, so what I want to do is, first concept is to get the idea that prophets in the Old Testament are different from prophets in the New Testament. What that means is that prophets in the New Testament are different from prophets in the Old Testament. You with it? Got it? Okay. Very important that we get the difference. See, in the Old Testament, we'll be very used to this. I think you've been hanging around church for a while. You heard sermons on the Old Testament prophets. We'll be very used to the idea that what the prophet says, God is saying. And when the prophet says it, you'd better do it. That's the concept. Uh, that's that dynamic. When God sets up the kingdom, there is a king, there is a priest, but there's a prophet. And the prophet's role is to keep all the system running, is to keep the system online. And you often see this tension between prophet and king, where the king is marching off on his merry way, doing what he wants, and the prophet will speak. And it's the prophet that has to be listened to. And you might be able to draw up stories in Saul's day, David's day, Solomon's day, etc. Ahab's day, on it goes, where the prophet is the word of God into that society, to that person, to that moment. Now, it's not a simplistic thing. It's um, very important that we recognize that when the prophet announces God is going to do this thing, it, it comes, there's a kind, of a, a, a kind of prophetic nuance around that. The most classic example is Jonah in Nineveh. You know, Jonah's message in Nineveh is very crisp and very clear. After he's done the fish thing, he finally gets on track for his ministry. He comes to Nineveh and his message is this. 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Now, what does that mean? Well, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. But if you know that book, Nineveh is not, Nineveh is not destroyed, at least not within the 40 days. Because what happens in the meantime? Well, they respond extraordinarily from the highest to the lowest in the city. They respond to the word of the prophet. They repent and they, they throw themselves on the mercy of God and God is merciful. And that's, of course, the dynamic of Jonah, the book, is that Jonah's got this problem that he knows God will be merciful. So a message of judgment is actually designed to turn people to repentance. Now, sometimes the prophets are much clearer and long-winded in their explanation. They'll say things like, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed unless you repent. But that's not what's in the scriptures, you see. 
So we just need to have clear that the, the words of the prophets, uh, th there's this kind of way that prophets speak. The aim is not to destroy Nineveh. The aim is to see the people repent, come to know the Lord and praise him. That's what they do. So we, we don't want to have um, a simplistic view of how the Old Testament prophets' words function. But it's pretty clear the response to the Old Testament prophet is you obey it. What he says, you obey. That's the Old Testament prophet. Now, the New Testament is different from that. The New Testament prophets and the, the task of prophecy is a different thing. I would say the easiest way to get the, the point is that the Old Testament prophet is replaced in the New Testament, not with the prophets, but with the apostles. Old Testament prophets speak the word of God. New Testament apostles speak the word of God. And you see that's how Paul functions all the time. You know, there's a little classic passage earlier on in this uh, chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 7, where he's talking about marriage and uh, sexual relationships and all this sort of thing. And he says, uh, not the Lord says this. He says, the Lord says this, the Lord says this. Then he says, not the Lord says this, but I say it. He doesn't mean this is a second order thing. He just says, oh, Jesus didn't say it. I'm telling you. In other words, you'd better do it. And so what we have is Old Testament prophet, New Testament apostle. So what does that mean? The New Testament prophets are. Let's think about that. It is what I would describe as applying the words of God into the community of God, into the people of God, or into the life of a particular person. So it is to speak the words of God, but not with the same authority as the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament prophets. They speak the truth of God to a particular time, to a particular person. This is a wonderful thing. I, I want us to go away going, that is a really great thing to have in our church. But it's not the same as the Old Testament prophets. That's the apostles. So what we have then is this idea that the New Testament prophets are constrained by what the New Testament apostles say, by what the scriptures say today for us. Um, and, you know, just as a little aside, if you ever get anybody preaching and saying, I've worked it out when Christ is returning, you know they're wrong straight off. Okay, this is a clear word from Jesus. That no one knows. No one knows. So it's just some really easy little, that's a little easy one. Um, but what does then the New Testament pr prophet do? Well, they are someone who speaks. It's the gift that is speaking the word of God into a person's life. Lower level significance. So if you compare, what's the response in the Old Testament of the prophet? It's obey it. To sum it up in the New Testament, you weigh it. That's the idea. You weigh it up. You work it out. You go, okay, I've heard what you've said. Let me now go and look at the scriptures. Let me, let me think about what I know about God. And then I'll make a judgment. That's, I think, the key difference. Old Testament, obey it. New Testament, weigh it. All of us, I think, do this sort of stuff. You know, most of us who have got a, a bit Christian for a while, when we see another Christian uh, near us and we hear their story and we're in fellowship and talking to them about things, and they'll say something to us about something good, something bad, something they're unsure about. We'll say, you know, what about this verse in the Bible? What about this idea? Have you thought about God in this way? That might help you. That's prophecy in a New Testament sense. And that's a wonderful thing. That's why I think it's something we need more and more of. Um, we need that in our, our life groups. We need that in our personal relationships, in our DNA groups. If you're part of a DNA group, some of the women in my life group are in a DNA group and they're having a great time with it. They want all the men to be in it, but that's another story. Um, 
Now, some of us are better at this gift, just like all the other gifts, you see. But it just stands to reason that as Christian people, we're going to, we're going to be wanting to speak God's word that we know into our own lives and speak God's word into other people's lives. Of course we would. That's Christian fellowship. And very often, you know, um, it, it's, it'll be all caught up in the prayer at the end of our conversation. And the things that we're praying are actually reminding ourselves of the words of God. And those things, that's why we come away from Christian fellowship enthused, relieved. What are the words he says here in verse um, 3? But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. Man, I want that. I want that from you. And I'm guessing you want that from me and from everybody else. That's what we need. We need the word of God spoken into our lives. We need to be reminded of things or challenged about things. You know, and when we're going along a certain path, we need to hear the word of God that will actually shuffle us in a different direction. That's what we need. That's what I need. And that's why prophecy is so important. So, so important. That's why Paul draws this one out and says, don't get all excited about tongues. We'll talk about that shortly. Get all excited about speaking the word of God into the lives of people and hearing it yourself from people. In our live groups, how helpful. Just have a little think out and this might work. So you're, um, you say something about your life. Oh, you know, at work, this has been happening. And then one person says, uh, you know, I think God wants you to be like a light shining in a dark place. That's a Bible idea, isn't it? You go, oh, okay. And then somebody else says, you know, I'm listening to you and you, maybe you've been a bit like a doormat here. You know, maybe, maybe God doesn't want you to put up with all that stuff, but maybe you've got to speak up. You know, oh, okay, I'll think about that. And then somebody else says, uh, you know, I am just so encouraged by the way you've been persevering at work. Things have been difficult for you. And, and that's a great Christian tra trait. And you go, oh, okay, I'll think about that. Now, one or other of those things may be more helpful for you at the moment. How will you work that out? You'll weigh it up. You'll weigh it up. You might also go, you know, that person knows me better. Well, that just sounds a whole lot more like what I need to hear from God now. And you'll go, thanks, everybody. <laughs> I'm going to take that away and I'm going to pray about it some more. Now, if we can do that more and more in our lives, we'll find some of us are better at than others. We'll call them the prophets. You see, they're the ones who will be able to speak the word of God. You know, most of the time you talk, I find it so helpful and so encouraging. Nearly all the things you say, I take on board in my life. See, nearly all of them? So you're not an Old Testament prophet, you're a New Testament prophet. I'm going to weigh up what you say. Now, this is such a helpful thing, that we, we have the, the word of God brought again and again into our daily lives, into our relationships, into our work, into our missional activities, into the fights we have, into the joys we have, into the life goals we set, to have people around us saying, what about this? What about this? Think about this. And uh, weigh it we must. This is why he says in uh, the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, he talks about the, um, verse 29, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. If a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. See, that's interesting, isn't it? You're not, you're not kind of taken over. God works graciously, gently in our lives. The Spirit of God is in us. So as the person speaking, you can stop speaking. It's not like, oh, I've got to talk. God's put it on my heart. I've got to talk. No, Paul says, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets is the idea. Verse 32. So you, you take turn, you, you, you each take turn to, to instruct, to encourage the words he uses there in uh, verse 31. And so 
this is a very good thing. And this will make a difference in our fellowship. What it means is that there is this incredibly diffuse capacity for God to work. So he doesn't just have to wait for us to have this thing happen on a Sunday. Oh, there's somebody going to teach the Bible to us. Good. That's the time we'll get the Bible into our lives. No, 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 no. We have several opportunities every week. And if we invite them, we have even more than that. We have opportunities for people to speak God into our lives. Boy, do we need that. It's such a good thing. It's such a blessing. And we're constantly then thinking about, what is the way God wants me to live? I've heard that from there and I've heard that from there. Maybe one is better than the other. I'll weigh those things up. That is a wonderful way to live. Thinking it through all the time. How does God want me to live? And so what happens is when, when God's word has this kind of freedom and without the, uh, the kind of pomposity and silliness of, you know, I am speaking from God, you must do it, that sort of thing. Without that, we're freed up to weigh the things that we hear and to value, oh, look, you know, thanks for saying it. I'm actually appreciating more of this thought. Or, you know, I do appreciate what you said, but I'm going to head in this direction. But what the process we've done is we've reflected and asked ourselves, what does God want me to do here? What is the thing from God that I ought to be doing? And so what that will do in our uh, daily life is it'll lead us to have a more godly perspective. It'll lead us to have more godly responses. It'll lead us to take more godly initiative in every part of our life. Because we're always thinking it through, always praying. We've always got another thing to pray. That last thing I heard from somebody. We need this more and more um i don't know if you know this verse in amos if we can have that up there's um this this is one of the worst verses in the bible for me um i don't know if you have bible verses that really trouble you this one when i read this verse it's like i have all the oxygen sucked out of my lungs even as i'm speaking to you now i just feel this kind of collapsing in the lungs this is this is to me one of the scariest most horrible thoughts this is a prophecy in amos the days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. That to me, I just, I just feel life shrivels when that happens. Society decays to its worst when that happens. Now that was the, the prophecy of Amos, that the day of the Lord would come as a day of judgment for the people of the Old Testament. And this is not a prophecy for us that we need to, to take. But I guess when you look through history from time to time, there becomes famines for the word of God. And, and that I, I feel, <laughs> for myself personally, that's one of the scariest thoughts in the world. The best case scenario is when the spirit of God is speaking. This is uh, from Joel. And this is, of course, what's quoted in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Afterward, he says, when the Messiah comes, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. The idea is that the word of God will have free reign amongst his people. Now, now that is a delicious thought. That is just a delight that God's word would just be crisscrossing out of every mouth. No longer is it just the Old Testament prophet that speaks the word of God, but that all God's people would speak the word of God. They'll speak it to themselves. They'll speak it to each other. It'll be weighed, New Testament times, it'll be weighed. But what, what a joyous, bounteous, glorious idea that is. That's what we want for our church. The word of God to be reverberating around every part of his church. Now, um, prophecy. There is a shadow side. Every gift's got a shadow side. We've been looking week after week. 
Um, the, the first one is the idea, like every other one, well, everyone should be able to do this. Well, no, we all should be speaking the word of God as best we can. Some will have the gift. Some will stand out as, as people who really understand and know how to apply the word of God to a person's life. Or some people will misunderstand the gift and they'll go, well, i got this gift and it's the word from God and so you ought to obey it as though I'm an Old Testament prophet. The New Testament prophet will be saying, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I want to suggest to you, this is what God might want you to know about, weigh it. I'm not God to you, I'll speak the words, but now you weigh it. And so there's a humility in the way this message is given, always a humility. It's a different model altogether for what you've got in the Old Testament prophets. So it's worth us noticing those problems. Let's move on to tongues. First thing to say is Paul's very positive about the gift of tongues. And um, that, that creates a bit of a difficulty, I think, for some people in some church contexts where they've been quite negative about the gift of tongues. And I want to talk a little about, about, about why that negativity is there. Um, what he is going to do in this chapter is he's going to say prophecy is way up here importance for the body and tongues is so unimportant for the body that it oughtn't even be used in the body except for a few exceptions. And we'll look at that. So he's positive. He said, you know, I wish you could all speak in tongues. He said, I'm glad I speak in more tongues than anybody else. He's an intense guy, Paul, and that gives you a bit of a clue, I think, a verse like that. But um, important for us to see this. Now, the first key thing I think we need to get a handle on, uh, head, head around for this, get a handle on, is that speaking in tongues is a subset of prayer. And if we don't put it as a subset of prayer, it becomes another thing, which is quite odd and mysterious and strange. And I don't think that's how we ought to think about it. It's a subset of prayer. So all the things to do with prayer, we ought to be reflecting. I'm not going to go through all that. I'm hoping you have some sort of general knowledge. You start thinking about, well, what does the Bible say about prayer? How should we think about prayer? But we ought to think about it in these terms. The second thing I want to say is that it is a different kind of consciousness state. This is not spooky stuff. Okay, I'll give you some classic examples. Okay, those of you who drive cars, how many times have you driven your car like half an hour, an hour, home from work or somewhere and you get home and you think, I'm sure I was safe. I do not remember any of those turns I took. Okay, that is a different state of consciousness from a whole lot of other states of consciousness. I'll tell you another state of consciousness very different from that is the time I jumped out of an aeroplane. Okay, now the time I jumped out of an aeroplane, I was thinking about everything, all the time, constantly, okay? In fact, even just reminding myself from 15 years ago when I jumped out of that aeroplane, my blood pressure is rising. I, I cannot help it, all right? It just, it's happening now. Okay, there are different states of consciousness. There's sleeping and waking and there's really concentrating on a fine little aerofix model. That you, they still have aerofix models. You know, when you've got to really concentrate on those little bits, you know, the war hammer, painting all the little war hammers. There's a different consciousness, yeah, like, like um, when you're playing a game and your son is thrashing you at it, you know, on the computer and you're logged up and you accidentally push the disconnect button, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> There's all these different states of consciousness. Now, what I would like to suggest to you is that speaking in tongues is prayer, but a slightly different state of consciousness. Okay, not spooky, just a different one. And I'll give you a clue as to where I think this fits. The idea here is that when you are praying earnestly for something and you run out of words, then other words might just pop into your head. In Romans 8, Paul talks about groaning 
the spirit groans. You don't know what to say, it says. You don't know what to say, but you groan. I don't know if you've had that experience. I have a few times in prayer. I, I don't know what to say, God. It's just all too much. It's all too difficult. Or it's all too fabulous. It's all too, too glorious. I don't know what to say. Now, I think the point of tongues is that it's, it's part of what God allows us, a different kind of way of praying, to help us have those more intense moments. I've got some difficulties, I think, with the way things are structured around tongues, but I think this is the positive part that we ought to be aware of. Paul says, I wish everyone spoke in tongues. That's chapter 14, verse 5. I think it's because he wants everybody to have an intense relationship with God. Maybe not all the time. Maybe not as intense as Paul. But he wants us to know times that are intense. I think that's what's motivating he wants us to have a deep emotional commitment to God. That's what prayer is. It's how we express it. A deep emotional commitment to God. It's interesting, I think, in uh, verse 2, when he's talking about tongues for the first part in this chapter, he says, For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. Now, when we hear the word mystery, we think it's something we don't know about. It's not how Paul uses the word at all. The word mysteries is the, the gospel known from secret times gone past, now revealed. Now revealed. That's the mystery. The mystery of the gospel. So it seems to me that what he's talking about here is he utters mysteries with his spirit. In other words, there's something about the gospel message, something about what God has done, something about God that so moves the person that they are, they are then starting to use a language that is not a human language a groaning, a wailing, you know, you could, you could uh, just find yourself crying someday over someone who doesn't know Christ. That would be an appropriate response to the gospel message. As you apply the word of God and the realities of eternity to your friend, your family member who doesn't know Christ, an occasional tear would be appropriate. You may find yourself just muttering. Um, you might uh, just have this great time with God sometime. You know, you're just hanging out, praying, praising, and you just run out of words. And you might just find yourself kind of happy about that. That seems to me a, um, a gasp of joy makes perfect sense in prayer from time to time. Let me just at this point say that I don't talk in tongues, but I've done all those things I've just described. You with it? Because I think there's a whole range of activities that we ought to be doing in prayer that is about the intensity of our relationship. I wish I experienced some of this stuff more myself. But I think this is part of how we ought to be reading this passage. So let me talk about the shadow side of tongues. Uh, the first one is when the, that type, I guess it's the same, everybody should speak in tongues. When that type of prayer becomes a criterion of some sort of spiritual reality, as though if you don't speak in tongues, you can't have the Holy Spirit in you. There's just nothing like that in the Scriptures. That's just not a Bible idea. It's been around strongly spoken for about 110 years. It's a big revival in Wales in 1901-23, shifted across to America. You might know some of this Pentecostal history. Uh, this, is, this stuff is all documented. The big revival. The, the, the idea that speaking in tongues was the key concept to show that you had the spirit in your life that's just not a bible idea and that is a big shadow side of this gift 
there have been ebbs and flows in that concept here in Australia. Uh, you know, in the 70s, 1970s, 80s, uh, that was a really controversial thing in the church. What's happened in the last 20 years, Australian Pentecostalism has shifted way more conservative. You hardly ever hear that. You occasionally hear it taught, but hardly ever hear it taught now. Uh, interesting too, a lot of the evangelical, more conservative churches have kind of shuffled along the Pentecostal uh, and charismatic end of the spectrum, if those words have meaning for you. But um, the great pity is when somebody says, you're not really a Christian or you're not a spirit-filled Christian unless you speak in tongues. There's just nothing in the Bible to suggest that. Um, another uh, shadow side is where the private prayer, which is what Paul is really saying this is, goes public. Uh, that's, that's a mess. That's the very thing he says not to do. And he's got an evangelistic purpose, an edification and an evangelistic purpose. If you're just muttering away in the corner, no one can understand you. What's the good of that, he says. He's almost rude about it. You just stop, would you? Is the kind of idea. Why? Because the fellowship matters so much. The building up of the body matters so much. So don't do something in the corner that will be misunderstood by a new person coming in or just won't help by those who are there. When the private goes public, it's a problem. The other problem I want to suggest to you, the shadow side of tongues, is that when it's ritualized, in other words, okay, everybody, we're now going to speak in tongues, let's do it. Uh, that, that's a problem. Because that's not what he's saying should happen here at all. Seems to me the idea is this is the kind of activity, to pick up Jesus' words, words you go into your private room and pray. You, you don't do that out in public. Now, there is that one... Um, variation on that and that is when there's interpretation of tongues um, this is very uncommon I've been asking over the last couple of months a lot of my uh, Pentecostal people I bump into does this do you see people interpret much and I, I haven't heard many stories of this at all I remember one guy I know who used to interpret uh, when people spoke in tongues and I found that very interesting um, what I would suggest to you is that interpretation Paul endorses because it turns tongues into prophecy. That's what I think is happening. So here's somebody who's got this kind of, I can't express it, but I just want to say something to God. You know, that's tongues. And somebody who's in a pastoral relationship with them goes, I know why he's so excited. It's because God has been just filling his life with the thought of forgiveness. Isn't that wonderful? Praise the Lord. In other words, a prophetic message. Or they say there's, you know, they've just been groaning in over their sin and so God is here and they're going to make some sort of interpretation of that experience. I would think somebody who is in a close pastoral relationship with somebody who is speaking in tongues and who couldn't interpret themselves. That's what he says. You want to pray you can interpret yourself. So it benefits. But if they can't, then there may be some wise Christian leader who is, knows them well and is able to guide them in that. I think that would be possible. I think that would make sense. Okay. So Paul has this uh, very interesting idea that it is much better to speak about God than to him, curiously, in public. Much better to, in the public gathering of God's people, to have people speaking the words of God, saying prophecies, much better to have that than to have people praying privately in tongues that no one can understand. That's the whole burden of this chapter. Okay, I'm finishing in a moment. Um, the reason for that is that one edifies everybody and the other is just in the corner quietly doing nothing, unhelpful. And even 
if, if an outsider comes in, it's kind of weird. That's his point. They're not helped. They don't understand it. And so much better just to have people in the, the fellowship of God's people speaking the words of God, encouraging people to weigh what they say. So, prophecy. Let's have more of it. Let's have more of this New Testament prophecy idea where we all reflect and say, what does God want that person to know, that friend of mine? So I can just encourage them. I can comfort them. I can strengthen them. Verse 3. Let me pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your people and for the experiences that we have. We thank you for the way that you lead us and guide us. Help us to understand your words so that we can really obey it. Help us to sort through some of the, uh, the more difficult parts of all this so that we might uh, live better lives for you. Father, I just pray now that uh, nothing I've said would offend anybody or cause uh, trouble. Help us, Father, to in fellowship work out what your word is saying and how to apply it best to us. Keep us from any sense of um, arrogance above others. Keep us from uh, any disparaging of others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.